Uh, I, I love that song. Um, it's uh, going to go great along with what we're going to talk about today. So if you have a Bible, open up, please, to Galatians 4. Uh, we read some of these verses in closing last week. We're going to continue where we left off. But if you weren't with us, I believe it'll be um, uh, the, the, we're going to start at a good place to uh, get everybody on the same page today. Uh, so Galatians 4, verses 1 through 11 is going to be our opening read as we hear uh, really an awesome, um, kind of an awesome summary of the gospel. The Apostle Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 1, Now I say that the heir, as long as he or she is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons and as daughters. Because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba or Daddy, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, then you are an heir of God through Christ. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those, by which, by, uh, those which by nature are not God's, but now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. The Apostle Paul goes from a very promising reminder to a kind of a very paralyzing few verses where he charges us or he asks us, are we living under this promise of, of what it means to be a child of God? But I want to think about that song we just sing for just a minute because it ties in nicely and it ties in perfectly really with our uh, text and our message today. Um, I want to highlight and I want to underscore the song's title, Living Hope. I got a question. Do you know what the difference is between hope and living hope? The difference is results, because hope is empty promises. Hope is illusions of grandeur. Hope is just wishes and would-bes and maybes. But living hope, however, living hope is something that's tangible, something that's proven, something that reciprocates our expectations with results. There's nothing worse than expecting and anticipating and getting nothing or something less than you expected in return. Isn't that true? That there's nothing more demoralizing and more deflating than pinning your hopes on something or someone, and they don't come through, or maybe they come through less than you expected, but still, it's a punch to our stomachs, isn't it? It's like putting all of your weight on something and it not being sturdy or stable enough to support you. Has that ever happened to anybody? I think we've all probably stepped on something that we thought was sturdy or we thought was stable, but turns out maybe it wasn't. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've climbed on something or stepped on something that I thought had something underneath it, but really it was just a board that was kind of um, hovering over something or suspended over something that immediately started to give once I put my weight on it. And the thing is, sometimes you learn the hard way that some things cannot support your weight. That some things cannot hold you up. And I don't just mean physically, but I, I, that obviously can be the case. Sometimes we learn the hard way that some things cannot 
support us. The other day, I was doing some routine light bulb changing. I know we've got some light bulbs in the center here that need to be changed recently went out, but we'll get to those. Um, but uh, I was changing some light bulbs down the side of the church, um, and uh, I, I used to use this instrument with a suction cup thing on the end of it, but that doesn't always work, and it usually falls off, and that light bulbs are busting and that is a little bit frustrating so um i always um always go back to the back and get um my handy dandy ladder now i got i got it for you back here because i want y'all to see this it's not the most um sturdy of, of things but i always think well, you know what it's got at least one more climb in it um now lindsay borrowed this from her dad i know why he didn't ask for it back um but every time uh i i set out to uh to get on this thing, it starts wobbling pretty good. It, this thing puts the wob in wobble. Um, but, uh, you know, it usually gets me to the, to the light bulbs. But I just want to put that there for you just to admire the, the uh, that thing. I'm sure it's older than, than Greg. Uh, he's probably been using that for a few generations. But uh, anyway, uh, I, I always get that ladder. And this past week, I thought, you know what? It's not going to hold me up. Um, not because I've, I might have gained some weight, but not because of that. But it's because I think it's just seen its better days. So thankfully, we've got a better one back there. But I always grab that one because it's just easier to carry. Um, it's more convenient uh, and than having to get the one that weighs twice as much and is kind of harder to lug around. Uh, but uh, other than being weathered a bit, if you just looked at it, you would think, well, you know what? That's, a pr- that's just an average ladder. I'm sure it would hold you up until you start to climb it and uh and then you start to shake a little bit now a little more personal for me um you may not be able to tell this about me but uh one of my knees is not like the other um both of them look the same uh, especially from up here right both of them look the same both of them if you were to look at them um uh, from you know through the short my shorts they're they look the same they don't look any different but i know that there's a difference in my left knee than my right knee uh, because I had an injury when I was in sixth grade and uh, couldn't walk until I was in the 11th grade. Um, I could walk, but it was about as wobbly as that ladder if you were to see it in person. Um, but because of God's grace and God's healing power, I can walk today. But there is a difference in my left knee and my right knee. You can't tell. Nobody can tell. But every once in a while when I'm walking around the house, especially after a long Sunday or a long day, um, sometimes my left knee decides I'm done supporting you for today. Whether it's time for bed or not, my left knee decides when that is time. And sometimes, Lindsay will tell you, I just fall over. Um, and sometimes I'm a little bit more dramatic than maybe I should be. Um, but uh, I'm used to it by now. My knee just kind of gives, and I kind of just stumble a little bit. Usually I catch myself. Um, and, you know, after about 30 minutes of sitting, I can get back up. But it just decides that, hey, it's supported enough for the day. And, and nine out of ten times, um, I'm just fine. But every once in a while, I have to rely on my right leg for all of my support. And you'll, you'll probably notice from up here, sometimes I do a little bit of a pivot because I know that my left leg can only handle so much weight. That's the difference between hope and living hope. And as we've learned through our study of Galatians, that's the difference between life without Jesus versus life with Jesus. Now, there may be a lot of people or things we put our hopes in. There may be a lot of things we put our weight on in this life. But he is the only one that never cracks, never wobbles, or never falters. From our emotional needs, our spiritual needs, to all of our needs, Jesus is our living hope. Peter summarized it like this. Blessed be the God and and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection. So what kind of living hope is it? It's a back from the dead against all odds 
down but not out kind of hope. Hope that has been tested, hope that has been proven, hope that is alive and cannot be killed. If you've ever, if you've been here for our study in Paul's letter through the book of Galatians, we've learned a lot about Jesus being our living hope, um, I think at least. We've heard that Christianity, um, we've heard Christianity be defended as the only living hope as Paul took us through his conversion. Now, Paul wasn't just simply converted from a Jewish man to a Christian man. He was converted from a murderer with blood on his hands to an evangelist with the gospel on his tongue. Uh, And last week, he defined what it means to put all of our weight on Jesus. So last time, if you were here with us for Galatians 3, Paul lays out the three pillars of Christianity, or he tells us this is what you get when you put all of your weight on Jesus. In Christ, we are forgiven of our sin by God. We are freed from our sin by God. And we are made family with God. That's the good. That's the blessing. That's the favor that you get. When you put all of your weight on Jesus, who wouldn't want that, right? Now, Paul defines Christian in contrast with religion, particularly the Jewish religion, but really all forms of religion, which, of course, God in part established. But as we learned last week, he established the Jewish religion to build their faith in his redeeming power. Because when he gave them the Jewish law, he also gave them the the, the system to atone for breaking the Jewish law. Judaism at the heart was never a religion of righteousness by law-keeping. It was a a faith of righteousness by trusting in God because you put your faith in the sacrifice being accepted by God in the place of your own obedience, which was the model God had introduced generations before there ever was a law, before there was ever in Israel in the days of Abraham. Paul proves he's not dismissing the Old Testament, but rather putting it in the proper place, always in the intended frame. A pathway to a relationship with God by faith and faith alone. A pathway to redemption from sin by faith. So this is Christianity. Our hope is not in our own works or our own flesh or any establishment of our world. Our hope is in God alone. We've learned that in the Old Testament days, believers looked forward, trusting in what God would do. We look back, believing and trusting in what God has done what Jesus has done. His blood, his death, his resurrection frees and forgives us of our sin. His ascension and reign from on high, wherefrom he works and calls us to himself, is what gives us this open invitation to be in the family of God. I think the first seven verses of Galatians 4 captures perfectly how Christianity is the full and complete plan of God, whereby anybody... Anybody can be reconnected and restored to God. 2,000 years ago, Christianity was established as the answer to God's promise to Adam and Eve that he would give them a seed, he would send a Savior that would forever, through time, provide every generation to come a living hope. And Galatians 4, verse 1 through 7, particularly verse 6, has told us that we have a living hope because we have a living spirit. God's spirit lives inside of us. The spirit of God has come to dwell within us. And this is going to be the subject of our text and conversation today for the rest of chapter 4 into chapter 5. Paul defines what it means. He defines what it means for a Christian to live up to the fullest potential offered to us by our living spirit. 
Now, I want you to listen once again to how Paul sets this up for us in verses 8 and 9. But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which are by nature not God. So he refers to their time before they were Christians, how they served, they were slaves to the elements of this world. He alludes to those back in verse number 3. They were in bondage to the elements of this world. And we'll talk about what all those mean, what all that means. But he says, now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how could you turn back and turn away from him and turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you were enslaved to and have been freed from? I want to I ask you, I want, to, I want you to think about all the things that we naturally serve and that we naturally are controlled by. Things that if someone were to point out, we'd probably say, I didn't even realize it. it's just part of my nature. Exactly. Now, not all that stuff is bad. Not all the things that we lean on and depend on and, and do every single day are bad things. But can we at least admit that some of us and some of those things may be a bit distracting in our following God? Maybe a lot of the things that we lean on and that we, things that we do by nature, maybe a lot of those things distract us from God. Well, the good news is, and what Paul was trying to say about salvation in a nutshell um, is what we've come to is, is a way not just to try to work our way to improve our condition, but salvation brings us freedom from these lesser things. See, religion is our attempt to get God's attention, but salvation is God getting our attention. That salvation is initiated by God stopping us in our tracks and revealing to us that He has something good for us, that He has something that can help us and change us. You see, religion is wondering and hoping for help. Salvation is being found by God and receiving a living hope. Salvation is God saying to you, I hear you, I see you, I found you, and I claim you. We are now in a relationship, a real dynamic, we're going to talk every day and do everything together kind of relationship. Now, we might bump into each other, not that we might bump into each other once a week or I might call you once a month. No, this is an actual relationship as in I'm moving in to your life. Now, man, y'all can relate to this. When you got married or when your wife moved in or you were both moving in to one place from separate places, um, this might have worked both ways. But I'm guessing your wife had a lot more to say about what was going to go and what was going to stay than you did. Now, maybe you love the design and your design is impeccable and, and you just impress your wife. But I'm going to guess that your wife had a lot more to say about what you got to keep and what you got to use to decorate and what you got to put in a box and never look at again or maybe throw away. Uh, now, if you were building, I'm guessing that your ideas um, were on this level and her ideas were on this level, right? And, and decisions were made by her. Now, now y'all know me. I've got a lot of collectibles. Let's call them collectibles. Some might call them toys, but I call them collectibles. Um, they're worth a lot of money. I'm never going to sell them, but they're worth a lot of money. Um, to me, they are. Um, I call them investments into the future. You never know who they're going to make a difference for. But when Lindsay and I moved into our home, um, all my stuff was banished to a closet. <laughs> but eventually, that closet became its own room um, because nobody was using it. Um, and now it's my office. Some might call it something else, but I call it an office. Um, but uh, that's where all my stuff has to stay. Now, sometimes um, that stuff makes its way to our bedroom nightstand or somewhere in the living room. I'm not really sure how it makes its way there, but usually they're always exiled back to where they came from. Sometimes they get put in a dark, dark place, and sometimes I never see them again. 
So I learned my lesson. It needs to stay out of everybody else's way. It's not tacky stuff, not most of it. Um, but uh, that's just how it works, isn't it, guys? Um, now, now, God moves into our lives. It might be a b- little bit bigger deal than you moving in with your significant other. But most of you ladies are probably thinking, if you knew my husband's taste, then me moving in with him was about as equal as me saving his life. But that's just for you and God to work out. Um, but come on, when we get saved... When we come to know God, it's more than just something casual and something on the periphery. As verse 9 puts it, when we are known by God, our heart becomes a home for God. So what, that's what the Scripture is telling us, that we are known by God, His Spirit moves into our hearts. Paul is telling us that God's Spirit lives in our hearts then we have access to a brand new, much better way of life. God's full intentions are to make His presence greater than any other force. Yet we resist this, don't we? If we're being honest, move this out of the way so everybody can see. If we're being honest, we've got a lot of things. We'll go back to the next one. Our hearts are often filled with and directed by things other than the Spirit of God, and that never takes us to better results. But I've got to ask you, how can this be? How can we turn away and rely on and lean on and depend on and retreat to and be more entertained by the things of this world that are worthless and weak in comparison? How can we put all of our expectations and hopes on things that have never proven to hold us up? when all reality we have been given access to and God has moved into our hearts. Now Paul's referring to their following the Jewish law, but again, what was the basis for this religion? It was them relying on their own self and this world to support their weight, to bring them fulfillment. It was surrounding themselves with things, hoping to alleviate these weights, the weight of their mind, their hearts, their emotions, their flesh. Their desire, our desire, and our want for something to give us peace of mind, comfort at heart, satisfaction for our souls. And we look for these things in so many different directions, don't we? We turn to people, places, and things. We rely on and lean on and depend on and become obsessed with. We revolve our clocks around these things in hopes that they give us the peace and comfort and satisfaction that we need. In in verse 10, Paul comes across a bit incredulous, and I want to talk about this for a minute. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Now, again, this is referring to the law of Moses, having people so religious that they thought they had to do this in order to be justified before God. They had to do these certain things, otherwise they were not going to measure up to God, or they weren't going to measure up for themselves. But I think we can relate to this in our own way and still communicate what God's message is to us. This world has so many of us wrapped around its finger so tight that we think if we don't observe its days, its months, its seasons, its years, if we don't follow the schedules that have been made for us, we might come up short. Our consciences are not wired to God as much as they are to this world. We feel and we fear that if we don't get in line and do what society expects of us, we might miss out on someone or something that someone told us was the end-all be-all. We think if we don't follow the schedule that we've accepted as the only possible way for us to live, we might miss something. Now, y'all don't have to tell on yourself today, but I think somebody can say that's me. 
We follow months and days, seasons and years. We are so in schedule to this world. And we think if we don't do it, we'll miss something. Now the kids, the Zoomers, as they're called. I don't know if they're really called Zoomers. I made that up. Somebody else made that up and I started using it. Not Boomers, Zoomers. The people that are younger than me. Because thank God I'm old now. Um, and I'm not, I'm not... They don't blame us for the problems anymore. Millennials, we've we, we made a mess, but now someone else is making a bigger mess. Um, if I'm being honest, I get a little bit of this sometimes. But the kids uh, use this phrase, fear of missing out. Now, I, you might have saw FOMO before, and you're like me, you're worried of sharing something or repeating it because it might be vile or offensive, because who knows in today's world. But that's what that means. The kids use that as saying, hey, I don't want to miss out on something. I've got to be there for the moment. I've got to be there to experience it. Now, maybe it's an experience, a destination, a set of ideal circumstances that we worry or fear missing or worry over it not happening as it should. But listen, this isn't just young people. This is why your grandmother is so meticulous about holiday traditions. Because if it's not done to the T, then something might go wrong. It's got to always happen the same way. Because that's where, how it's been done, and that's what makes everybody happy. It's why we spend our whole lives trying to get everything lined up perfectly so that we can get just the right stuff just the right way. You see, we are so tightly wound and set by this world's clock. It's like we've all got one of these in our backs. I, could, I, I don't have one of these toys. I, I wish I did, but I'm a little too young for that. Um, but we've all got one of these. Y'all know what this is. It's a winding thing, right? Clocks have them, toys have them. You wind it up, and as much as you wind it, and you turn it loose, and it keeps on going. But we've all got one of these in our backs, it seems. It's like some personification of culture and society picks us up every day, every month, every year, and winds us up and says, you've got to do it as I've told you to do it. And if you don't do it, you might not be up to somebody else's standard. You might not get to where they're at. You might not measure up to them. And we feel like we've got to keep beating that drum, don't we? We are preyed on by different things as men, as women, as moms, as dads, as singles, as widows, as divorced, as boomers or zoomers and everything in between we deal with pressure from this world and there is an enemy who comes at us every day and lodges one of these in our backs and winds it up as tight as he can and he whispers in our ear you've got to do what i expect you to do you might not be happy otherwise and we are miserable the whole time but we keep on marching because that's what we feel like we got to do. You know why we're afraid of some, that something might go wrong? Because so much can and usually does go wrong. Isn't it true? We're afraid we might miss something. We're afraid something might go wrong because so much does go wrong. The fear is not misplaced. We're rightly afraid. But you know why we're afraid? Because our hope is misplaced. If our hope is in this world, we ought to be afraid because we might not expect what comes next. But when our hope is in this world, that's why we're afraid. We're afraid because our hope is wrongly placed. That's the problem. We allow the wrong things to pick us up and wind us up. I'm not knocking traditions, experiences, or having a good time. But it's like Lecrae sings, go get all you can and do it however you can, but if you start finding your identity in it, if you start relying on it and depending on it and hoping in it, you've made an exchange that could prove devastating to your soul. 
Because there's just one living hope. There's just one living spirit, and there's just one living God. He has set us free from this world. He has given us the ability to have that winder pulled out of our backs. He has given the ability to pull those hooks out and those chains off. And I know there's a lot of pressure to keep on keeping on. But we don't have to resort to religion to work our way out. We don't have to bow down to the institutions of this world to find our way through. Jesus offers us the presence of God to define us and refine us and put us on an incline in every way that matters. Big importance on the matters part. Look over to Galatians 5, 1 through 5. And hear how Paul continues this message. And again, he's going to talk about circumcision, which was the, Jewish, the Jews' way of pressuring the Gentiles to be just like them. Because circumcision was an outward sign of the Jewish faith, and they were pressuring the Gentiles to basically become just like them. And they were saying that Gentiles couldn't have a legitimate experience following Jesus their own way, in their own culture, in their own traditions, unless they did it the Jewish way. Now listen to what Paul says in, with, with that in mind. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made you free. Do not be entangled again in this yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised, the Gentiles, that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged to Christ, who, uh, you who attempt to be justified by the law and have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly await for the hope of righteousness by faith. And again, again, the Jews were telling the Gentiles, Jesus isn't enough for you. You need our religion to complete you. You need to do it as we've done it to be completed. That your faith in Jesus isn't enough. You've got to look like us, dress like us, work where we work, go where we go, and do what we do if you're going to get with God. But that's not the gospel, is it? Now again, this isn't saying that religion's bad or organized religion's bad. It's just saying that any organized religion that emphasizes something besides a relationship with God by faith and how to grow, it, grow by faith is not from God. Anything that says, well, there's a pathway over here that you get true fulfillment from, though some worldly accomplishment through measuring up to some standard. The Jewish rites were all about being righteous on your own. That's why Paul says you fall from grace because we're trying to justify ourselves by other ways. It's like somebody saying, well, unless I make this much money or have this much money or have this much stuff or do this or do that or can go there, I'm not fulfilled. Is that the gospel? The gospel says that Jesus is enough for you. Yes, you should work hard. Yes, you can make goals and set goals. But if you begin to find your identity in things... You've lost something that God can only give you. And doesn't that just drain us from what God has given us? The Jews wanted to measure up. They had this us-against-the-world complex. They wanted to outdo the rest of the world because they were so small compared to the rest of the world. There's a little bit of that in all of us, isn't there? But let me just say, there, that is a one-way ticket to bondage. When you enter a race like that, there'll always be a competitor that's faster than you and will lap you over and over and over again. You can't win that race. 
If we accept this world's rite of passages as what defines us and makes us, then we are accepting bondage over freedom. Let me translate that for you. Paul would say, Christians, if you rely on a Sunday service to define where you stand with God, how you feel or how you don't feel, you're accepting bondage because Christianity is better than that. Yes, church edifies you, but it doesn't define you. How you feel when you leave a Sunday morning service, whether it was good or bad, that does not define where you stand with God. Where you stand with God is by faith. And whether you're pumped up or bummed out on Sundays, that does not determine where you stand with God. God's bigger and He's better than that. When you're not feeling it, He reminds you that He's still got you. The devil discourages more people on Sundays than he does any other day of the week because he gets Christians thinking, well, do I, feel? I didn't feel what they felt. I didn't get what they got, so am I not in it? Let's take it farther. If we rely on our work day going super smooth and everybody being cooperative to define how a day can be good or not, or if God can still use it, we're accepting bondage. If you rely on your progress in a company, your ability to continue to make progress and make gains and get farther ahead, if you rely on that to define you and determine whether God is using you or not, you're accepting bondage. Because the devil has his chains around you and he knows he can use people, he can use other people's circumstances to discourage you and disable you and bind you. Come on. If we rely on, or if we're convinced that according to how an election goes, our ability to serve God may be either good or bad, we're accepting bondage. If we say, well, God, if that happens, we're done for, who says that? If we think that depending on how things are going in this world, we have, don't have a future or not, we're accepting bondage over freedom. Is this tracking with anybody? Because I think God is revealing us, uh, revealing a lot of chains to us today. We have been saved from these chains. God has moved into our hearts and He is with us no matter how we feel or what we face. Because I know I don't feel it every day and you don't feel it every day, I'm sure. There's a lot of times I have some internal challenges that make me feel like I am as far away from God as I could be. If he's at the North Pole, I'm at the South. A lot of times external challenges come near to me and I feel like I can't see God for anything. What God wants us to understand is that we have a living hope in his living spirit and there's one thing that makes the difference and that's one thing that matters. He says in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, these outward accomplishments or these outward signs or symbols, they don't mean a thing. But faith working through love is what makes the difference. The only thing that counts is faith in God working, loving Him and letting His love work through us. That's what makes the difference. That's what defines you. Does God love you? Check that box. Have you trusted in what He's doing for you and through you? Check that box. So allow His love to work through you. And you might not can change how you feel or what you see, but you will never lose this one thing that counts more than anything. 
The only thing that counts, the only thing that makes a difference, we should focus on, keep our minds on, this is what stands in the way of you having a good day or a bad day every day. Again, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to get in your head, but I think this is spiritual, and I think this is something that can change your life. What stands in the way of you having a good day and a bad day, having a day that matters or a day that's nothing, is knowing the only thing that counts is you trusting God, His love on you, through you, and with you. Because God is with us. Because we have a living hope and a living spirit within us, by our faith, with His love, over, within, and through, we can make every day count. Every day can matter. Every day can matter to Him. See, the question is, can anyone or anything stop our flesh from running us in the ground and draining us of life? We put our hopes on anything or anyone else. We are left for the wolves. Many Christians experience this because we take our eyes off of Jesus. That's what ultimately proves how unstable or insatiable something is, whether it can save us from our flesh's desires. Because every other hope is just setting us up for despair. There will be a breakdown in faith and a more evident breakdown in our relationship with each other. That's the end game of the flesh, to cut us off from God and to cut us off from each other, to cause us to live as if we have no connection with God and no confidence in Him. This is the enemy's goal every single day, to cause you to doubt, to cause you to cause what we see or how we feel to distance us from the God who always sees, whose Spirit fills our hearts. The enemy gets us focused on how things haven't been going our way, how we hoped they would go, how our prayers haven't been answered the way we expected, how our family's in trouble, how work is a mess, how our finances, opportunities aren't coming through, our country's on fire, our world's in a mess, and we've depended on these things. When they fail us, it's an opportunity for our flesh to consume us and for our sin to overrule us. Now listen to how Paul guides us into not having to accept this way of life as we close. Verse 16 in chapter 5, he says, I say then, as in this is the answer, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust or the desire of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not know the things that you wish or that confuses you. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law and you are not in bondage to your flesh. Let's unpack this just a minute. That if we walk, if we walk by and live in the living Spirit of God, we won't be brought down by the desires of our flesh. That's That's what Paul is telling us. Now this might be grim for just a minute, but this isn't anything we don't already know. We all know this too well, honestly. This is something important for us to understand. It may teach us something about ourselves. Fallen nature desires fallen virtues. Our nature always drifts toward things that drag us down. That's what it means by the flesh desiring or the desires of the flesh. Our nature wants to drag us down, not pick us up. Let's be honest, some days we don't fall, some days we start off on the ground. We stumble out of the gate. Our posture is not neutral or gray, it's sinful and fallen. That's what Christians believe, that's what the Bible teaches. As we've discussed, Christians also believe that Jesus can totally change this completely. We'll never get the full dose of salvation unless, however, 
unless we address the full measure of our sin. Something we need to be aware of, every worldview, every pathology apart from Christianity is colored by and shadowed by this sinfulness and fallenness. If we fall for the tricks and traps of this world, we may trade in our Christian faith for some other kind of faith, and any chance of us overcoming is chased away. You know, something I've noticed the last six months since everything went off the rails is that there's a lot of motivation being put out there just by secular culture, and that's okay. You see these signs on street corners and in stores, on social media, encouraging everybody, telling everybody that, you know, you've got this or you're doing great because there's basically an admission that we all have accepted that things have been pretty bad. But there's this idea in culture that you can just will your way to a better place. You can just make things better if you just try hard enough. Let me just say this. There is no strong arming or willing our way to a better place in this life. We must be saved to get to a better state, a better place of mind. And the good news, we can be saved. And the better news for many of you, you have been saved because you trusted in Jesus. But we struggle much like the Galatians were struggling. We put our faith in Jesus, but we've turned to so many other things every day for strength and help, thinking that Jesus isn't enough. We're looking and turning to and relying on so many things, hoping for relief, yet we don't find any. And God's word to us today, His question is, have you forgotten that you have a living hope, the living spirit of the living God? Something that every Christian denomination agrees on, one of the few things that we all agree on, is we come together every Sunday and confess that we are weak and sinful, needy and vulnerable, And if we leave our guard down, we are in trouble. But isn't it true that sometimes before Monday at lunch, we've already laid our guard down and the desires of our flesh have picked their weapons back up and we're in bondage again? Isn't it true sometimes by lunchtime, we're already back in the stronghold of depression and anger and bitterness and cynicism and pessimism and defeat? Isn't it true? Maybe before midnight on Sunday, we've already let sin put its hooks back in us. The vices of temptation are already swaying us in the wrong direction. Whether it's an emotion or a temptation, our flesh still has control over us in many ways. Maybe there's some things or people you can't avoid, but you know what? We can turn the voice of God up louder and let the Word of God be on our minds. There's plenty of things we can't avoid. We choose to not resist them. And I know, I know, we might not intend on getting wrapped up and overcome by emotions or temptations in many ways, but in most cases, they're waiting on us. Way back in Genesis, God told Cain, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary for you. It doesn't want the best for you. In verses 19-21, through you can read a list of the desires of our flesh. Things the flesh wants us to fall victim to, and be consumed by. Every day there are giants that come to you and that their goal is to enslave you to these fleshly chains. Giants that tell you you're not good enough, you're never going to make it, you're never going to have what you want, so go ahead and give up. And they, they cause us to doubt, they cause us to give in. If it feels like this world is often pushing you towards an edge, these verses tell us what's at the bottom of the cliff. All things, emotions, and temptations that result from letting our guard down, from letting our weight 
down on things that cannot hold us. Once more, we know the solution. Paul's already told us that we should walk in the Spirit, live by the promise of living hope in the power of God's living Spirit. How can we overcome our flesh? How can we overcome the things of this world? By living in the power and promise of the living hope and the living God. Our flesh may drain us of life, but our God is restoring us and reviving us constantly. How can we walk by and walk in the Spirit? We've got to confess that we need God's guidance. Acknowledge that, yes, all of what we've talked about today is true. Yes, we're tempted and overcome. We've been distracted and otherwise invested. And in a large part, we've been and are being drained by the works of the flesh. For a lot of us, we've got to get rid of these ladders in our lives that we're tempted to use, that can't hold us up, that we, call, that we can't put our weight on. We can't fall for their lies. Think about the story of David the shepherd boy. Nobody wanted to accept that he was going to be the next king because he didn't look like the next king. Remember, Saul was picked to be king because he was taller than everybody else. He was awful at the job, but he looked like he would be good at it. Everyone relied on their flesh to define them and deliver them. And who comes into Israel but somebody taller than Saul, a giant, to mock and enslave Israel because they were trapped into that kind of mindset. It's always about what I can do, how I can measure up, how taller I can be, what more can I do. There's, all but, there's always somebody taller. King David knew that his living hope was greater than anybody else's hope, so he went out to face this giant without any armor, without any safety net. Listen to how he approached the giant. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Well, David, where's the armies at? See, David wasn't going out there with a squad of soldiers. He went out there as one man. Because the armies of the living God, to him, were not just with him, but within him. He stood in front of Goliath and he said, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David leaned into the living Spirit of God with a, within him to silence the voices of this world that try to take us in all sorts of wrong directions. They may stand over us, but they don't live within us. We can stand up to them because of who lives in us. So are you walking? Are you living in the Spirit? Are you walking in freedom and the approval and security that only comes from knowing Jesus? Are you living by the Spirit of God who calls you His own, that has made your heart His home? Are you living by faith and by love for the God who has saved you? Or is that just something that Sunday's about? And how's it going for you out in the world if this isn't the case? Maybe it's time we stand up to this world and, that tries to tell us that it's better so many times, that tries to tell us that it has better options, and maybe we need to remind it that there's only one living option, 
the living God who is alive in our hearts. And if you don't have this assurance today, you can. You can confess your sin. And you can welcome your Savior. It's that easy. You can confess your sin and welcome the living God into your life. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much that we serve the living God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not confined to the past. He is alive today. He's in my heart. He's in the hearts of many people this morning. But there's somebody here today that would confess that he's not within them. He's not in them because they've never trusted him as their Savior. They've never confessed their sin and their weakness and asked you to do for them what only you can do. They've never asked you to save their life, to change their life, to transform their life, to take them out of this world, take their weight off of this world, and put their weight in you and you alone. So God, maybe today they're willing to say to you, Father, I come to you asking you to forgive me of my sin, to free me from my sin, and to make me part of your family. God, I pray for everybody else today that has been tempted to turn away from Jesus and trust in other things. Maybe somebody wants to confess that they've entered the race in this world that only drains and defeats them. Would you remind them that Jesus is enough, that He is and can always be their living hope? Lord, maybe this song and this invitation extend to that one that's in most need today. We ask this. In Jesus' name, amen.